morning, everyone. Welcome to class. Yay. I, I was thinking about it, I believe it's been a, right at six months since we last had Sunday morning class. So uh, it's great to be here. Great to see each and every one of you. And those of you who are watching on live stream, we're glad you're here. And uh, hopefully this will be a good session for you. I'm looking forward to teaching again. Jolene was asking me this weekend if I was excited, and I, she usually hears me say, oh, i got to study again. But I was very excited. I told her, yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. it it's, 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 you know, I need to get back to it, and it's good. You know, when you're, when you're leading a class, it motivates you to study, right, even more. And you learn probably more than people that are sitting in the audience. So that's great. And uh, last time we were in class, we were studying the book of Philippians. Uh, of course, you may have noticed Kyle has been doing a study of Philippians. So uh, we're going to forgo that study, and uh, today we're going to begin a study of the Gospel of John. And I think it's going to be a great study. The book of John is a great book to, to study, and I think it's going to be well worth your time to be here and to go through that journey with me. It'll be at least a quarter, maybe a little longer, uh, that we'll be looking at the Gospel of John. Before we do that today, though, let's, um, let's go through our, our prayer list uh, before we begin, uh, we, we extend our sympathy to uh, Dana Pritchett and her family and the passing of her dad, Steve Simpson, last weekend. And I believe they had a graveside service yesterday in Birmingham. So uh, remember Dana and Jason at this time, their family. Uh, LaVon Updegraft has shingles. So not only did he get his cancer and all, now he's got shingles. So the transplant he was going to have on his spinal cord and all that is not going to happen until October. Uh, and he is doing testing for all that still as well. Mike Rogers is going to have a heart ablation uh, next Wednesday at Gwinnett Lawrenceville, so please remember him at this time. A few friends and family, Ben Hogan's grandfather, Quentin Hogan, fell on September 1st and broke his back, so uh, he's asking for prayers for his grandfather and their family. Also, uh, Laura Fowler lost her cousin, Eugene Parsons, is that right? So, uh, uh, West Nile, actually, man. Just one virus or another, isn't it? Uh, so please remember Laura and, and, uh, and Victor and their family at this time, passing of her cousin. Clesselinda Overly's grandson, Matthew, recently had surgery to repair his broken arm, so they're asking for prayers for him. Fred Lawson, Betty Pinter's cousin, needs prayers for his continued cancer progression. So please remember him at this time. And of course, we've mentioned a few times those who are, who are suffering from the virus, a Hollywood, uh, daughter of Cheryl and Angelo Natoli, Sister Tracy Thompson is recovering from the, from the virus and doing much better. And then Sue Havard's sister, Nancy Brown, is hospitalized with it and is still struggling. So uh, please remember these folks in your prayers as well. And also this morning, Jim Henson's sister, Sandra Hendricks, is hospitalized in Tulsa with COVID symptoms. I'm not sure she hasn't tested positive yet, right? But, but she does have symptoms, so remember her. Yes. Okay, Greg Bonadie's father had a fall. Oh, he's got a brain injury. Okay. Greg Bonadie's father has a brain injury after a fall in Columbia, South Carolina. So please remember him at this time as well. Anyone else? All right, before we begin today, let's go to our Father in prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we honor you and we praise you as our God and our Father, the extreme creator of our universe, Father, and we just thank you for your blessings, for your love for us, for your love for your creation, that you would send your Son and sacrifice him on our behalf. We might have a hope, a hope of eternal life with you, Father, a hope of leaving this cruel, dark world, Father, and being able to live everlasting in your light, Father. We just thank you for that. Father, we ask you to be with those who have been mentioned on our prayer list today, those who are suffering from the virus. Watch over them, help them to be healed. And Father, we have many that are mourning and, and uh, passing of loved ones. We ask you to comfort them, help us to know how to minister to them. And those who are sick at this time, Father, and going through surgeries, watch over them, Father. Help them to be safe through their surgeries and be healed as soon as possible, Father. We ask you this time to be with us through this study. As we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, studying about the life of Jesus, who you sent. Help us to understand him better, understand what uh, the gospel has to say to us in our lives. We might apply it in a way that helps us to grow spiritually, Father, and be able to continue to live in a way that's pleasing in your sight. We ask you to be with uh, our nation at this time, Fathers. We're going through lots of turmoil, uh, social unrest, an election coming up. We just ask you to watch over this country, continue to be in control, Father, continue to have your will done whether the people want that or not, Father. And we just ask you to continue to be with us as we traverse this nation and, and, and coming up through this election that we might be able to do your will and help those who are hurting, help those who might be in need, help those who need help uh, to comfort, help them uh, be able to uh, thrive in, in their lives, Father. Help us to be good examples of those around us in our community that show the love that you have for us, the willingness to give up ourselves, that they may be uh, comforted and they may be better. Father, we also ask that this cruel virus be eradicated as soon as possible, Father, that's causing so much havoc in people's lives around us and our families in the world altogether. So as you continue to help those who have it to be healed, Father, if possible, but also to end this pandemic as soon as possible, Father. Thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this congregation, Father, the people here, the heart they have for service, Father. As you continue to bless them, bless this congregation, bless the, the leaders and the shepherds here, they might make the right decisions to lead this congregation forward in your kingdom. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right, so you can be opening up your Bibles to the book of John. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first few verses there. Uh, but as you know, John is one of the four Gospels, right? Gospels meaning bearers of good news, right? The count of the life of Jesus Christ. We have four, right? We have the first three, which are commonly called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is because they are very similar in their account. Not, in the way the, not necessarily in their style of writing, but in the chronological order of things, they're very similar. They talk about many of the same events in Jesus' life. And so that's why we call these the Synoptic Gospels. Of course, Matthew, if you read Matthew, most likely Matthew was written more for the Jewish Christians. Okay? He refers back to the Old Testament on many occasions, does he not? He refers to prophecies. Okay? The Jews would have known about these things. So Jewish Christians would have understood the book of Matthew very well. Perhaps Luke is written more for the Gentiles. Remember, Luke was the great physician. Who was he with on his travels? Paul, right? We know that Luke was traveling with Paul, and he wrote about 
things about Christ that he knew. Of course, he had to have been there for the gospel to be part of our canon. He had to have known Jesus. He had to have been around when Jesus was living. But his account is probably written more for the Gentiles that didn't necessarily understand the Jewish traditions, the prophecies, but more just to say, this is Jesus the Christ, who God sent that you might have eternal life. And then we have Mark, which is kind of written to the Gentiles, perhaps more in Rome. And if you read Mark, you kind of see some things where he kind of explains some of the traditions of the Jews, or, or some of the translations of the words. He kind of goes into more depth on that. So perhaps the Gentiles in Rome might have understood that better. So you have the three synoptic Gospels, and then you have John. John, very different, very different style of writing. Now, he gives an account of the life of Jesus, but he does not necessarily have the same events that the synoptic Gospels give us. Why was the Gospel of John written, or who was it written to? Well, we can answer that. Turn over to chapter 20 real quick, and let's just see what we can read about that. Who or what was the reason for John to be written? Chapter 20, look at verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write the book? Or why was the book written? That you may believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. That you can share the life that comes through this faith. You see, it's not just about having faith, right? In this world, in this life, we can have an abundance of life through that faith. There's something about living in faith that's more to it than just believing, right? There's more to it than just having faith something about the way you live because of that. And that's what he's saying here. He's encouraging us to have faith in Jesus Christ. His gospel in the first chapter begins with a prologue. Verses 1 through about verse 18, he, uh, he makes several claims as to who Jesus was. And of course, he refers to Jesus, which we'll read in a second, as the Word. He refers to this thing or person as the Word. And then he makes evident who that is. Turn back to chapter 1 there. And let's look down at verse 14. And he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. All right. So we find out in verse 14 that he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word, all right? And then we find out in the first five verses that he claims that this Christ pre-existed man. Let's look at that first one of chapter one there. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He says, this Word, this Jesus, preexisted man, preexisted the world, preexisted this creation. He was there in the beginning, long before He was born of Mary. And this work has great, this work that he did in creation all has great significance for us. He's proclaiming that Jesus preexisted the creation. Well, he's not alone, you know. He's not the only one that's ever said that. But before we get in, let's look at the book of John just for a second. A little bit of an intro. Of course, the Apostle John's usually credited with the authorship of this gospel. There are some other ideas, I'm not going to get into them, but uh, there's some other ideas some folks have thrown out there. Maybe it wasn't necessarily John that wrote it. Maybe there, it was a conglomeration of folks. May, I've even heard some say it might have been Lazarus that wrote it. Interesting thing. I'm not going to get into that. It would be worth your time to read about that. But he would have had a very good familiarity with Palestine, right, before the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in AD 70. He would have known the Jewish way of life. Uh, Irenaeus, a disciple of John's disciple Polycarp, is one of the earliest extant sources to associate the gospel with John. He said John wrote it. In Matthew 4, we read that John and James, the sons of Zebedee, were preparing nets in a boat when Jesus called them. And what did they do? Both James and John left their father and followed Jesus, did they not? And then we read later in, the, in, the chapters, in chapters 13, 20, and 21 about Peter, James, and John, who were really taken aside many times by Jesus. Part of his, what we might call his inner circle. And then after the resurrection, John continued to play an important role in the early church. Paul says that Peter, James, and John were pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He says this in Galatians 2. John is generally considered the last gospel to be written, probably between 90 and 100 A.D. There's other scholars that say it might have been closer to the destruction of Jerusalem at that time, but most likely between 90 and 100. Uh, as I said, it's a very different style than the Synoptic Gospels, very different. You do not have the account of the same events that are in the other three Gospels. Uh, you notice you have a lot of parables in the first three Gospels. You only have one, one, pretty much one in John that's mentioned. <clears throat> John says, as we just read, man belongs to one of two things. He's either of the darkness or he's of the light. And he points out that Jesus is the Messiah and makes it clear that Jesus is God. All right. Interesting concept, right? Jesus is man and is God. This word that became man, became flesh, pre-existed man. Well, we know this also by the prophets. If you turn over to Micah, chapter 5, you can read about the, what he had to say about the pre-existence of Christ. Beginning in verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. <clears throat> he has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, 
whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. An interesting prophecy, right? First of all, what's he prophesying about? Jesus is going to be born of Bethlehem. And he's going to come through Judah, right? He's prophesying. Micah's telling us that right there. We know that happened. And this Messiah that's going to come is from when? Everlasting. He's been there forever. There's no beginning. He's always been. Isaiah spoke of the king to come as everlasting father in Isaiah 9. Zechariah recorded the Messiah's own promise to come as Zechariah 2. So we have prophecies related to the preexistence of Christ, right? A lot of talk about it. Turn over to John chapter 8 real quick. Let's read a few verses from that. <clears throat> and we're going to look at Jesus himself proclaiming that he is everlasting, that he preexisted man. Beginning in verse, uh, John 8, beginning in verse 56. <clears throat> All right, if I get to 56. You, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the old phrase, I am. Simply saying, I have always been and always will be. Before Abraham, Abraham saw his day and was glad. Now you can imagine him saying that to the Jews, right? What are you talking about? You're a young man. How did you see Abraham? And that's what he's explaining. I'm saying to you, I was always existing. I was always there. In his prayer shortly before his arrest and his crucifixion in John 17, he talks about the fact that he always existed with God. He was always there. Turn over to the last book there. In Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter 22 real quick. I want to look at a verse there. Chapter 22 and verse 12. Jesus testifying to the churches, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega are what? Greek letters, right? Alpha, beginning, omega, at the end. He's the beginning and the end. All right? First and the last. Jesus, proclaiming that himself. It's also declared by the apostles, right? By John in his gospel, we just read about, chapter 1. He also mentions it in, in his first letter, chapter 2. Paul, in his epistles, he refers to the preexistence of Christ the everlasting nature of Christ in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He also talks to the Philippian church about it in chapter 2. And then in Colossians chapter 1. And let's turn over there and see what he says there. Turn over to Colossians. I'm sorry we're jumping around a lot, but we've got a lot of verses we want to look at to show what it means, what show the, the truth about Christ's preexistence. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1, and let's look at uh, verse 15. <clears throat> He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, were there thrones, kings, or dominions, kings, or principalities, 
or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created by Jesus. Keep your finger on, first, on Colossians there, which I just left there, but keep your finger on there. I'm going to come back to that in a second. His preexistence is also illustrated by creation, right? All things were created by Jesus. We just read that in Colossians. We read it in John 1. Uh, for creation to be done by him, obviously he had to exist, right? Wouldn't make any sense otherwise. And it implies his eternal power and divine nature. Now, something I want to mention back on Colossians um, chapter 1 there. Let me pull this out. I have, I'm reading from the New King James Version, but I want to read to you what it says in the New American Standard. Uh, and if any of you have a New American Standard, read along with me. But this is actually how those verses go in the New American Standard. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. But are governments just come around by, by random act? No, they're created by God. Got it right there. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A little bit different phrasing there, isn't it, than what you read in New King James. In him, all things hold together. What's he mean by that? He's in control. Jesus Christ has existed forever, always been, always will be, and he holds everything together. Can we take comfort in that? There's a lot of stuff going on in our world right now, right? Has been for the last few months. It's a trying time for everyone, really. Every person has been affected by it in some way or another. Jesus Christ is in control. Remember when we talked about the kingdom and how he's sitting at the right hand of God, reigning in his kingdom now? We are citizens of that kingdom of heaven. The church here on earth, we're part of that. We can take comfort. We have a king, a ruler, who's in control. It doesn't mean it's going to be Health and wealth for us. Things happen in this world. It's a dark world, remember? But we have hope. We have that hope of eternity. We have that hope in Him that He's in control and His promises are good. We can take comfort in that. Well, these are remarkable claims concerning Jesus. <laughs> remarkable claims, even that would be blasphemous if not true, right? Can you imagine saying to the Jews that I have always existed? Especially to the Pharisees? That's blasphemous, man. You know, that's on the order of uh, being crucified for that. Oh, wait. He was crucified. Hmm. Yet John's gospel is designed to prove exactly what he said. Exactly what he said is true. There's a great significance that we don't necessarily consider, do we? We don't necessarily think about the preexistence of Christ as being that significant. We just, I mean, we study it, we hear it, we, under, we understand it to some degree, right? But we don't think about the significance of that. He is deity. He is deity. We just read it in Micah 5. He's going forth from everlasting. What happened to all the kings on the earth, or has happened? And what will happen? They stop existing, right? They die. Our king will never die. 
Our king has always existed, and our king always will. We can have comfort in that. He was the eternal I Am. We just read that in John 8. You remember back in Exodus 3, when Moses, when God came to Moses and said he wanted him to go to Egypt? Remember that? And Moses kind of said, well, I can't go. I'm not a good speaker. Well, I'll send Aaron with you. Well, I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to say? What do you say in verse 14? Remember? You shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. What? That's kind of hard to understand. Well, I am? Well, what's that? He's claiming that he is God, and he has always existed. I have always been, and I always, I, I, I always been, I am, and I always will be. That's what that means. He's making that claim. He is God. He was God we, we understand from the book of John in the first chapter, he was with God, so he had a personal communion with God. He always has, always will. And he was God. He's explicitly stating his deity. Therefore, because of that, he's worthy of what? And by the way, I, didn't, I should have mentioned at the beginning, there are outlines out on the tables for this class, sorry, I meant to mention that before we started. So if you didn't get one, they're out there. Uh, if you, and if you want to go ahead, that's fine. If you want to go and get one now. But anyway, so you can get them after two. But as being king and God, he's worthy of our love and admiration, is he not? I mean, what do people do to kings? They bow down before him, right? They're humbled before a king. Same with God. Well, what else is he? He is life. By virtue of being the creator and the sustainer of life, all things were created by Him. He is the life, right? He is the creator of life. All things are held together by Him, as we just read. Again, John makes it clear in his prologue, without Him, nothing was made. None of this world would exist without Him. We would not exist. The earth would not exist. The universe would not exist without the pre-existence of Christ. In him was life itself. Turn over to cha John chapter 5 real quick. Let me read something there. Verse, verse 19. John 5, verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. We have hope then, right? We have hope for our own resurrection. Death is not the end of it for us. Right? He's promised us eternity if we are sons of the light. All right, he is life. And then following that same theme there, he is deity, he is life, and he is light. Okay? What does that mean? He is light. Well, we live in a world of darkness, right? This world is pretty dark. 
I know, I'm, I'm sounding like a big pessimist, right? Even an optimist is going to tell you that there's trouble in this world, right? There's all kinds of trouble in this world. Can't get away from it. In fact, I've, had it, I've heard it said that life is really just going from one problem to the next. That's, that's kind of pessimistic, yeah. But there's some truth to that. This world is dark. Why? What was Adam and Eve told in Genesis 2? Not to eat of the tree, right? Why did he say not to eat of the tree? Because they would surely die. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying Adam and Eve would not have died until they ate of the tree? Well, logically speaking, that sounds about right. We were created to live. God created man to have life. Sin came into the world. And because of sin, death entered the world. And then he sent his son and gave us that hope, right? Because he died for us. Interesting how all this kind of ties together. This world's a world of darkness. People spend their lives stumbling in ignorance. I mean, do you ever wonder how people can just exist and go from day to day without wondering what's it all about? What is really the meaning for this life? I mean, I, I guess you can stay busy enough, right? You, you can work hard and play, whatever, not, not ever think about it, you know. But at some point, you've got to wonder, what's it all about? And usually that occurs when you get a diagnosis, right? Mm, that big C word. Or a close friend or spouse passes. Makes you think about it, don't it? Something about these things that we realize, wait a minute, we're not here forever. Those who are living in darkness are alienated from the life that Christ can bring us, the everlasting Christ. That God, because of their ignorance, He provides. And so as creator and sustainer of life itself, Jesus is uniquely qualified to bring life into the world. We just read that in John 1. He calls us to believe in Him, that we might become sons of light. Turn over to chapter 12 there. Let's see what he says. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, a little, while, a little while longer, the light is with you. What? Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. As believers, we can become sons of that light. All right? Jesus is the light. All right? <clears throat> Jesus uses that, of course, as a metaphor. There's a contrast, right? It's, it's what, you've heard it said, what is darkness? What's the definition of darkness? The absence of light, right? You walk into a room with no light, it's dark, right? It's kind of hard to see. You flip a switch, boom, the, light, the room is completely lit up, right? And I mean, it's the whole room, right? Just like that. It's a metaphor 
Jesus is the light. When he comes into the earth, everything is lit up. Everything is enlightened. You can now see. Not only can you see, you know the truth. You remember what he told, uh, I think it was Pilate, he was the Pilate of the Sanhedrin at the beginning, at the end, I come bearing witness of the truth. You can see. Okay. <clears throat> well, we've heard the preachers of Christ from the prophets, from Jesus himself, from the apostles, and from John. But, yeah, we, we can understand eternity, right? We can understand that as a concept. You, you, you're going on forever. You're just living forever. You can understand that, right? But yet, it's kind of hard to grasp it, isn't it? When you really think about it, everything in this world has a beginning and an end, right? Nothing in this world lasts forever, right? Which kind of what makes it kind of dark. So it's hard to grasp that. Have you ever, I know most of you probably had kids. You were a kid at one time. Remember when you were telling your kids God created man, or they were created by God? Did you ever get the question, well, who created God? Did you ever wonder that yourself? Yeah. As a child, you, you think, well, okay, God created me. Well, who created him? How did God come about? Well, he's just the great I am. And it was probably kind of hard to explain that to your child, wasn't it? When you told them that. He's just always been, and they're going, huh? How can that be? You know, they accept it, of course. Your, your mom or dad's telling you that. They're not going to lie to you. But it's hard to grasp that, isn't it? Hard to understand that. All right, I'm going to take you down a little history lesson, a little bit of history, maybe a lot of physics. Go with me on this, all right? <clears throat> Isaac Newton, ever heard that name? Maybe some of you have, right? Born in 1642 on a farm near Grantham, England, okay? His father was a farmer. 1661, he entered Cambridge University, just north of London, to begin college. In 1665, he had to come home. You know why? Take a guess. It wasn't that he graduated or anything. You know what happened in London in 1665? The bubonic plague broke out. And you know what Cambridge did? Closed their doors. I think they still played football, though. But they closed down. Hmm. That's pretty funny, isn't it? That's kind of similar to what might be going on right now, right? or at least in the past few months. Cambridge closed. He had to go home. And while he was sitting in his father's orchard one day, he saw an apple fall from a tree. Some say it hit him in the head. I don't know if there's any truth to that. And he began to ponder that question. Ponder a question. Why did that apple fall to the ground? Why didn't it go this way or that way? Or why didn't it go up? Why did it come to the ground? Pretty smart guy, 1687, he published what's called his Principia. That said, now, go with this, I, I don't fully understand this, so I'm going to try to explain, but he published the principle that everybody in the, every physical body in the universe is attracted to every other body in the universe with a force that is directly proportional to the product of their masses. Now, if you're a physics teacher in here, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't understand that, don't worry about it. And also inversely proportional 
to the square of the distance between them. What he was describing was what? We all know that as gravity, right? He explained that every body that has mass, we have mass. These pews have mass. This podium has mass. We all have mass. We're made up of something. We are physically, not, not lovey-dovey physically, we are physically attracted to each other according to, uh, as he said, directly proportional to our mass, inversely proportional to our distance. Okay? Everything in the universe has a gravitational pull. All right? All right. Now, I hope I haven't confused you yet. All right? Our mass is not our weight, though. Understand that. We have a certain amount of weight on Earth. If we were to go to the moon, we would weigh a lot less. Why is that? Our mass would be the same, but we don't have the gravitational pull on the moon that we have on the Earth. Therefore, our weight would be less. Okay? Okay, so Newton said we live in what we call a three-dimensional space. All right? Three dimensions meaning if you think of a cube and go back to your old geometry class in high school, you have width, right? Sideways, length, forward and back height, up and down. We move in this space, right? But then Newton also said, we also have this concept of time. And time is constant. It's always moving forward at the same rate. Moment to moment to moment. All right, well, what am I telling you all this for? Up until the turn of the 20th century, that's pretty much how physicists believe the world works, particularly around motion and things like that. Newton believed that, he described it, until a certain fellow came along named Albert Einstein. Has anybody ever heard that name? Okay. Born in 1879, and as he got older, he told about having this question, uh, uh, imagining in his mind a person sitting in a train station, watching a train moving down the track, okay? And right when it became equally in the middle of two trees, in other words, this tree was on the front and this tree was on the back, that when that train was right in the middle between the two trees, he's, that person in the train station saw lightning strike the two trees. This one in the front and this one in the back. And it's simultaneous, right at the same time. The person in the train station would have seen that exactly at the same time. However, he thought about that and he said, but if there was a person sitting in the middle of that train that's moving down the track, saw the same lightning strike, it would not happen simultaneously. He would see one strike before the other one. And he thought, why is that? Why does that happen? Well, about 1905, he came out with his general theory of relativity. All right? All right, go with me on this. He said, not only do we live in a three-dimensional space, but we live in what's called a space-time continuum. And he said, Newton was wrong about time. Time is not constant. Time is relative. All right. Now, uh, if you're me, you're going, okay, what in the world are you talking about? Well, here's what he said. He came up with this equation. You've probably seen this if you've ever looked at science stuff, and you probably wonder, what in the world was this? E equals mc squared. And he says that what that is is energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. And what he's basically saying is, time is not constant. There's only one thing in the universe that's constant. 
and that is the speed of light. And he said, if you could go to the other end of the universe and observe the speed of light, it would be exactly the same as you can observe it in space here by the earth. Now that's in a vacuum. The speed of light in this room is not the same speed as the speed you would see in space. If it was the same speed, you couldn't see it. All right, The cells in the back of your eyeballs couldn't comprehend it. But he's saying that's the only thing in the universe that's constant. And that equation says mass and energy are interchangeable. In other words, everything has mass, and with that mass, if it could be converted to energy, that's, that's how the equation works. So my mass, if I multiplied that by the speed of light, that tells me how much energy comes from me. You know, wait a minute, mass and energy, what are you talking about? You ever heard of an atomic bomb? Yeah? Anybody know how an atomic bomb works? Probably not, right? And, and I had to research this heavily to kind of understand it. Basically, that equation allowed scientists to come up with an atomic bomb. And what it says was, every massive thing, like this paperclip right here, I got a paperclip. There is very little mass in that paperclip right there. All right? But if I could perform nuclear fission on this and cause its atoms to be split, and I'm not going to go into that. There is enough energy that could be converted from that mass right there to be the size of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima at the end of World War II. From that paperclip right there. Eh, I, I know, I'm kind of trying to impress you. I don't really know anything about this. I just had to read about it. Yeah, we'll be testing on you next week. Okay, so where am I going with this? All right. So Einstein said time is relative. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, what he said was, as I'm standing here, just standing here, I'm at the maximum rate of time I could be, okay? In other words, I'm standing here, time is just moment by moment moving forward. But if I started moving, time for me is going to start slowing down. You know, what? Now, if I started, I, don't, I can't run very fast. So if I ran up this aisle, it's really not, it's, I'm not going to notice any difference in time. But he says, as you were able to speed up, if you could go all the way up to the speed of light, time, of, time for you would completely almost go to zero. And you may have seen movies about this where someone travels faster than the speed of light. They go out into space, they come back, and everybody on Earth is 20 or 30 years older than them. You ever seen a movie like that? I can remember one recently, Interstellar, a few years ago, came out. Something like that. That's what they're getting at. And he says, using this equation, there's another one called time dilation. That's what that's called. And he says, time dilation equals the square root of 1 minus velocity squared over speed of light squared. I'm just, I'm just, I've read that too, just throwing that out there. What he's saying is, as we're moving, time for us slows down, but for people outside observing, it doesn't. Think, think of an example. There's a truck moving down the highway at 50 miles an hour. It's hauling a flatbed trailer, okay? There's two guys standing on that trailer, one at the front of the trailer, one in the back. <clears throat> the one on the back has a baseball in his hand. Now think of this baseball being time, okay? Truck's moving down the highway at 50 miles an hour, and the guy on the back throws the baseball to the guy in the front of the trailer, and he throws that ball at 50 miles an hour. To the guy that caught the ball on the trailer, it appears to him like that ball traveled at 50 miles an hour, okay? But, same truck moving 50 miles an hour down the road, guy on the back has the ball, 
There's a guy standing on the side of the street up in front of the truck a good little ways. The guy fires the ball at 50 miles an hour to the guy on the street. The guy on the street catches the ball and it practically puts a hole through his glove. You know why? Because the ball is now traveling at 100 miles an hour. Whoa, 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 wait, wait. Well, think about it. He threw the ball at 50 miles an hour. The truck is moving at 50 miles an hour. Therefore, the speed of the ball becomes 100 miles an hour. Now, don't go home and try that experiment, you know, unless you, unless you just want to. I don't, it'd be kind of hard to set that one up. But think about time in the same way. The two guys on the truck are moving, so time is slowing down for them. It's a little bit slower. Similar concept. Well, what he said was, speed of light is constant. I know, stay with me, stay with me. I'm going to get something. All right. Jolene said, you're going to talk about what? And I said, I'm going to talk about speed of light. Said, They'll be saying you're an idiot. So, well, whatever. All right. So, what he said was, also as we're moving, our mass increases. And that can be laid out in the math. Can't prove that you could ever go to the speed of light because you can't do it. But our mass increases. And what he said was, as our mass increases to the speed of light, mathematically speaking, once we got to the speed of light, our mass would be infinite. Okay? And since mass and energy are interchangeable, according to that equation, the energy that could be converted from our mass would be infinite. And then at the speed of light, mathematically speaking, time would be zero. And you can, there's a lot of things about the smallest particle of light is a photon. A photon has no mass. Therefore, if you multiply zero times the speed of light, what do you get? Zero, right? So what he's saying is, if you could actually get to that point, you would be infinitely massive, you would have infinite energy, and time would be frozen for you. All right, well, why am I saying all this? I just wanted you to think about the idea of light. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, this is a metaphor. has nothing to do with the attributes of light. But isn't it interesting that you could mathematically prove that if you could travel at the speed of light, you would be infinitely, infinitely massive? In other words, you would exist everywhere, omnipresent. And if you could travel at the speed of light, mathematically speaking, you would have infinite energy, all-powerful. Hmm. And what would happen to time? Zero. Time does not exist anymore. You would just exist forever. All right. Now, I'm not saying God is physically light. I'm not saying that he is held to the physics of light that he created. Not, don't get me wrong. But I think it's a very interesting parallel. Very interesting to look at that. Look over to Genesis chapter 1 real quick before we close. And read something. Genesis chapter 1. And let's read verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void in darkness, was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the night day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Wait a minute. Had the sun been created yet? When was the sun created? Day four. 
So there was already light, and there was already a day. And by the way, how do we measure time? By the revolution of the earth around its axis, right? One day is 24 hours around its axis. One year is all the way around the sun. But there was no sun. Yet he says there was a day. How did that happen? Turn over to Revelation. End of Revelation. Chapter 22. Just start there in verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. The need they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the love of God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Why am I doing all this? I'm just, I love that metaphor. God is light. He's, he's in, his, in His kingdom, in heaven. He's not of the earth. Don't get me wrong. Don't try to think that I'm saying God is physically light. But many people resist it. Many people miss it. Many people live in darkness. I'm telling you right now, don't miss it. Nothing else you can take away today. Jesus always existed, always will. Be there at the end. Isn't it going to be great to be in heaven and see his life? Amen. We'll see you next week.